Real Nerds is a proud partner of the Denver Podcast Network. In the shadow of the mountains, we, we speak. speak. Coming to you from the X Access, it's John of All Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this John of All Trades podcast promo. Each Wednesday, I bring you a brand new interview with someone fascinating and ask the question we all ask when we meet someone new. Hey, what do you do? It's fun, informative, and it's the 2017 Westward Reader's Choice Award winner for Best Denver Podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, and johnofalltrades.us. Oh, hi, podcast listeners. There's many ways you can listen to the Real Nerds podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes. You can also subscribe on Stitcher Radio. You want to send us a Twitter message? You can do that. It's so easy, at Real Nerds. Like us on Facebook, Real Nerds Podcast. You can visit our website, realnerdspodcast.com, where there will be a lot of articles for you to not only read, but to listen to our previous shows. You can also call us, 720-6Nerds5. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hi, this is Jonathan Tiersten from The Perfect House and Sleepaway Camp, and you are listening to The Real Nerds Podcast. Welcome to Real Nerds Podcast, unofficially the official podcast of Denver Pop Culture Con 2020. I am your host, Brad, and with me is... Zach. And this week, we're reviewing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yep, the ninth film from Quentin Tarantino. So stay tuned to the ep- end of the episode for that review. We will talk about our initial thoughts of the movie, play the trailer, and then we'll give you all the spoilery details. Yeah, there's a lot of fucking spoilers in this movie. <laughs> uh, but other than that, we talk about Blu-ray, 4K DVD releases, uh, what we've been watching, movie news... And sometimes we go around town with me in a segment I call Going Around Town With Me. Hey, film buddies, follow me around Denver. I- I'm sorry, I'm pretty sure it's called Going Around Town With Brad. That's me. Okay, well then fine. You- me is Brad, Brad is me, I is Brad. Anyway, go on. Yeah, this uh, week, The Midnight the Esquire is Ninja Scroll. Mm. Now, um, you and Ryan are fans of this. Uh, you were describing it to me last week, and I'm curious about it, but um, I don't know. Yeah, it's great. I haven't watched it in a while, so I can't really give you some details, but the animation is incredible, and the, mm. the, the, the images are graphic. And uh, uh, I wish I could see it, but I'll be at the 40-hour uh, film project. So That's right. You will be off making another film in 48 hours, a, uh, an insane task in and of itself. Um, which, by the way, if you want to hear more about how to do the 48-hour project, you can listen to an interview we did with Chad Terry on uh, one of our episodes about a month ago. A couple weeks ago, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, still an insane task. I can't believe you still do it every year. Here's our Toy Story 4 episode. Yes, Toy yeah. Story 4, yes, there we go. Um, but yeah, like I said, um, I don't know what you're going to come up with this year. Um, I'm still praying for some kind of Thunderbolt-related uh, <laughs> arena. Or I would, love a st- I would love a sequel to Catastrophe. I'm not going to lie. That's one of my favorites. So. Sequelize another movie. Maybe. Yeah. You never yeah. know. One of our goals is to include all the characters, all the props, and all the lines from everyone we've ever done. Ooh. So we'll see. We'll see how this shakes out. Uh, the Drive-In. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe they are on the final week of this lineup of... The Lion King, Toy Story 4, and Spider-Man. All Disney-related in some form or fashion. Yep. Yeah. So the family-friendly outing, so check that out. Mm-hmm. 
and I'm hoping I'll get to shoot there for my 48. So we'll see. Ooh. Um, if not, so, so if you want to bother Brad this weekend, uh, you know where to go. You just revealed that. Well, you can't go there on off hours like I can. That fence is pretty easy to hop. <laughs> There's well, not a lot of. I'll punch you in the face. You'll fall <laughs> off that fence. Oh, never mind. <laughs> Forget that. I'm not going to do that. Um, yeah. So that's what's going on on around town. Uh, another segment that we uh, do on the show is catching the classics with Corinne, and I believe this is part twenty-one. Yeah, but it's also catching the Miyazaki classics. So let's roll uh, Corinne's next review. Hey, nerds! Corinne here for part twenty point nine nine repeating of catching the classics, which is also part ten of catching the Miyazaki classics, where I'm going through all eleven films directed by Hayao Miyazaki. This week, I tackled our last one of the series, which is also my favorite, Howl's Moving Castle. Uh, So, just brief thoughts, and then I'll get into the synopsis and then the full review. I understand now why people think that this is one of Miyazaki's lesser outings as a director, Um, even though I'm biased because it's my favorite. Um, I think it was maybe like the second or third Miyazaki movie I ever saw. Because I know I watched Kiki's Delivery Service as a kid, but I think I saw Howl's Moving Castle, yeah, after Spirited Away when I was in college or shortly thereafter. So, yeah. And this, like, it's in the kind of like fantasy, romance, adventure sort of genre. And that is like totally in my wheelhouse. So, Again, I'm biased, but I've seen it so much now that I'm kind of like nitpicking it. So, you know, it's like having seen it so much, I can notice little things that maybe the first or second time I would have glossed over. So in a way, this film is also a little bit at a disadvantage when I'm reviewing it. So just keep that in mind. Okay, so quick synopsis for you. Howl's Moving Castle is about a young woman named Sophie who works at a hatter shop. And one day she encounters Hal. And while Hal, you know, it's just a brief exchange, um, the Witch of the Waste, who is one of Hal's um, kind of, I, I guess, kind of like a rival, like she has a grudge against him because he dumped her one time. Um, she comes in to see Sophie and then curses her with being ugly and old. Well, maybe not ugly, but just old. Um, because she thinks that Sophie is closer to Hal than she actually is. And Sophie, trying to figure out how to break the curse that's on her, goes out into the wastelands and um, eventually runs across Howl's Moving Castle. And then there's all sorts of, like, adventures that everybody goes on together. So, yeah. Um, So just for a little bit of context, this movie came out in 2004. So this was after Spirited Away which was 2001, and Spirited Away won for Best Animated Picture at the Oscars that year. And as I've said, I think it's one of Miyazaki's best films. I think it's like right up there with Princess Mononoke. And those two came out back to back. So it was like Princess Mononoke's 97, Spirited Away's 2001. So then this one was coming out. And I think a lot of people, because Miyazaki had those two great outings with Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away, they were really disappointed by this movie because I do think it compared to those other two as well as some other Miyazaki movies, it doesn't really bring a lot to the table. The animation, 
um, I guess the animation for how or for the for the castle for Hal when he's like doing his magic um there's a couple of sequences that look really beautiful but there are some sequences that look kind of like meh um I've said before that when you see the characters from a distance you can tell that the quality of the animation is a little bit lesser I don't know how that stands up to other Miyazaki movies because like I said I've seen this movie so much that I'm starting to notice those little things. Um, but yeah, it just, there are some parts of it that look kind of lesser to me than like Spirited Away, for instance. So the animation isn't as good as other Miyazaki movies, I would say. Um, the story, there are some things in the movie that are never explained, such as, you know, there's this mild spoilers ahead. There's this thing at the end where there's, like, maybe time travel? It's like, okay, so wait, was that just, like, a convenient, like, memory that was there to reveal to Sophie how to break the curse on Hal and Calcifer? Or was that time travel? Like, what was that exactly? Never explained. You know, why does Sophie sometimes look old and sometimes look younger once she's cursed? Not really explained. It's kind of implied that there's some kind of, like, self-confidence sort of thing like when she's um I I forget what it is exactly I had to look it up to figure out exactly what was going on but there's something with like once she's less self-conscious of being old that's when she's actually like younger looking um but yeah there's some things that are never super well explained in the movie and that are explained in the book and I know that oh yeah side note Howl's Moving Castle is, the movie is based on a book of the same name, and I know that there are some people out there who are fans of the book that were not super happy with the adaptation by Miyazaki, that, you know, that, like, maybe the spirit of the thing was right, but there were some details that were left out, you know, with most adaptations, but anyway, so yeah, the story kind of suffers in some areas, although I will say there, it is really well done that there are some important things going on in the movie. Like there's this war that's happening between Sophie's kingdom and another kingdom. And there are some uh, things that are thrown in there of like, oh, their prince is missing and they're bombing the coast. And, you know, they're like kind of important pieces of exposition that all kind of come together at the end. And it's like, oh, so it, you know, it pays off to be paying attention in the movie. But it's like, to be fair, I think that, people who haven't seen this six times like I have, um, you know, th those important pieces of information shouldn't just be background. They should be a little bit more overt. But I think this movie, Saving Grace, for me, is twofold. One, I think the characters are just super memorable and fun. Um, as I said before, I love old Sophie and her um, the voice performance from Jean Simmons, who's a woman. Um, she does a fantastic job. And Old Sophie is probably my favorite character of all of Miyazaki's um, movies. And I think that Jean Simmons is probably the best voice casting job of any of um, the, you know, the English language voice actors for his films. And um, yeah, I think like the, the memorability of the characters for me kind of goes hand in hand with the voice actors. 
because I have watched this before in Japanese, and when I do, I, I miss the English language voice actors. I miss Christian Bale as Hal, and I think he he has a great range that he brings to the table, um, both vocally and emotionally, because Hal does have to go through some pretty crazy stuff where he gets to be you know, super dramatic and Christian Bale has to deliver the line, what's the point of living if I can't be beautiful in this like super serious way? Um, there is the scene um, where it's like maybe a dream sequence, maybe not, where Hal is kind of like a big bird and that's the first instance of Christian Bale's Batman voice. Um, but there are also scenes where he gets to be um, lighter and happier and he's like you know, trying to, to be a better person and have a good, um, have a good time and enjoy himself and enjoy his, his friends and his, his family now. And I will say that they, they do become like this kind of a weird family at the end where it's, um, Hal and Sophie and then Hal's, um, assistant or apprentice, Markle and the Witch of the Waste, who's played by Lauren Bacall. Um, I, I mentioned it before when I reviewed Castle in the Sky, but she's kind of the antagonist for the first point or the first half of the film. And then once Sophie meets up with her again, there's this kind of nice um, transition to where Sophie realizes that the Witch of the Waste, you know, maybe isn't the best person, but, you know, kind of takes pity on her because of some other stuff that's happening. And so, and then she ends up becoming part of their family too. And it's, it's, it's like a really weird story but I just love how these characters all interact with each other and the kind of weird um, family unit that they form eventually and yeah it's 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 just, it's just a fun movie oh I should also mention um, Billy Crystal who plays Calcifer in my mind kind of a weird choice but he does a great job like when I listen to the, uh, or when I watch the version with the Japanese voice actors, um, I miss Billy Crystal's Calcifer, you know? He, he has such character to him in his voice performance, and he's just kind of fun and, you know, lighthearted, even though he's a, you know, he's a fire demon, you know, that's what he says. Um, yeah. I, again, I'm biased toward it. I think, but empirically, I think this is one of the better voice casts of any of Miyazaki's films. I love the the characters and how weird and unique they are. And I know that Miyazaki is drawing on like, you know, another like source material from this, but you know, he, I, I, I haven't read the book, so I can't speak for that. But I, I, just as a movie, I love these characters. I think they're so memorable and fun. And I love seeing their adventure that they go on, even though there are some things that are kind of like, huh? You know, there's like this whole side plot with Sophie and her family that's not really touched on very well, but you don't really care. You're just, you're just having a great time with, with Sophie and Howl and everybody else. So, oh, <laughs> again, it's hard for me to give this a letter grade. I think a B is pretty fair because... Again, the animation's a little bit lesser. The castle and some other sequences are probably the best things that come out of the movie animation-wise, but it's not as consistently good as you see in Spirited Away or Princess Mononoke. Um, the story does suffer a little bit 
from different things, either not being picked up the way they should or given, you know, like other things are just glossed over and, but yeah, the characters are great. The voice actor, the voice cast is phenomenal. And so I think, I think a B is pretty fair for that. So yay, we made it. Um, in addition to the article on Howl's Moving Castle, I will also have a kind of review of the entire Miyazaki um, series on the website. So just kind of some final thoughts on, you know, what works for Miyazaki, what doesn't, um, what are his better films, why, you know, why certain things work, why certain things don't. So different things like that, just kind of a, a nice wrap up to the series. So go check out realnerdspodcast.com. Hopefully that'll be up there. Um, or if it's not up there when this episode is posted, it'll be up there within the next couple of days. So, yeah. I don't know. Now that I've done all the Miyazaki movies, I don't know what I'm going to do for my regular Catching the Classics again. Uh, I guess I'll just figure something out. Maybe you guys can help me. So, I'll see you next time with the regular Catching the Classics. So... Thanks for uh, in coming along this series with me, nerds, and everyone listening at home. And I will talk to you all next time. Bye. Maybe she could do all the Jane Austen adaptations that have ever been done. You could do that. Um, you know, I uh, I would love to know what Corinne thinks of Citizen Kane if she hasn't seen it. Hmm. Uh, not because I like to keep uh, plugging that film, uh, but uh, uh, I'd be curious what a journalist... Um, in this day and age feels about that film because of what that film's about. Um, there's more than likely she's already seen it if she, um, if she hasn't already tackled it cause it's one of the top tier ones. Uh, but if not, there's also a bunch of Hitchcock she can watch. And I know she's actually watching the lady vanishes. Um, and she will be doing an episode of the Shamley silhouette, um, that I'll record sometime in the next week or so. Um, uh, along with making sure all the other ones get up. So um, I, I recorded a bunch in, in a row, so I'm good to go. So Did I miss I, – I don't remember her doing Spirited Away. Was that the first one? It must have been. I can't remember. Um, Corinne, tell us if we're wrong. Did you already do Spirited Away? Um, and if Watch so, is going to be like part of the last week's one. <laughs> yeah, just, just, just listen. She's going to be like, it's the worst one, and I'll be like, no, it's not. It's the best one. Anyway, congrats on completing that. Yeah, congrats, and- Corinne. Uh, looking forward to seeing, hearing what you do next. Yeah. No, yeah. I'd love to see her tackle another animator of some kind. Don Bluth. She should do Don Bluth. That'd be cool. I'd like to see her review like four different versions of a Jane Eyre or Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which includes Pride, Prejudice, just, and Zombies. Yeah, just, just get really burnt out. Yeah. Um. Cool. Uh, let's talk about what's coming out on Blu-ray, DVD, and 4K. DVD releases and Blu-rays. Uh, this is a pretty light week on new releases. Uh, uh, the Intruder with Dennis Quaid, um, and um, uh, you could pick uh, Making Good. I'm sorry, yeah, and you could pick that up um, on Blu-ray. Uh, doesn't say anything about a 4K. Uh, also, The Long Shot with Seth Rogen and Charlie Theron, which uh, you saw, right? Yeah, I kind of enjoyed. Right on. Yeah. I, I do want to watch it. I'm um, sure I'll buy it, but yeah. Right on. Uh, the the big 4K release this week is Glory in 4K. Oh, that's a good um, one. A 1989 classic there with the Matthew Brodericks, the Denzel Washingtons, and the Morgan Freemans. So you can pick that up. Uh, other than that, though, it's a lot of Shout Factory, Scream Factory, uh, 
uh, Warner Archives stuff coming out. Um, you can get uh, from Warner Archive The Thin Man from 1934, uh, starring William Powell and Myr- Myrna Loy. Uh, it's the first film in a series of films uh, with those two as a couple, uh, a drunk socialite couple who also solve mysteries. Um, they are wonderful films, and I'm glad that they're at least putting out the first one on Blu-ray. Um, from Scream Factory, you can get Quatermass in the Pit and Quatermass 2. Uh, and these are some horror films from uh, Britain that Quatermass are... Quatermass or Quartermass? Quatermass. Quatermass. Wow, all right. Yeah, Quatermass. Um, actually, the writer of uh, the Quatermass films was tapped at one point to write a Halloween movie that ended up becoming Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. Um, so there's a little bit of that in there. Um, you can also get a steel book of humanoids from the deep. Uh, that's, uh, from Scream Factory. You can pick that up. Um, uh, we've also got, uh, it looks like Turbo, a Power Rangers movie is coming out. Uh, this is, I guess the sequel. I don't know if Screams or Shouts putting that out or not. It makes sense because they, they just did the first one, so. I can't tell. It doesn't say here. Uh, Warner Archive is putting out, uh, a little film, um, that will make you shout Stella to the rooftops. It's a streetcar named Desire from 1951 with uh, Marlon Brando and Vivian, Vivian Lee. You can pick that up. Um, let's see here. Um, there's a bunch of the reptile from 1966. You can pick that out. Uh, this covers pretty uh, uh, fear inducing. Take a look at that reptile person. That's, that's pretty scary right there yeah. it kind of looks like a reptile wearing a weird 60s wig um or a green rat yeah you never know uh you can also pick up uh, seasons one and two of bojack horseman uh on blu-ray cool uh so that's pretty neat if you're a fan of uh that i've got five of them though so oh really they, they, so they already put them out no i'm just saying like it's weird that they bundled one and two why not just do all five hmm. i don't know um and then uh from uh, uh Sorry, what that? Why can't I? I can't pick on anything here. Uh, Scorpion releasing is putting out "Too Scared to Scream" uh, from 1985. Uh, this one's uh, a pretty interesting uh, setup. I want to watch this movie. I've never seen it. A psychotic killer threatens inhabitants of a Manhattan apartment building, which inspires a cop to lure him into a trap with an undercover policewoman. So, uh, the cover looks pretty interesting. It's like a face that's been broken so it's like a mask and it's like a gun kind of coming off of it so it looks pretty interesting um and other than that there is not much this week um you can get ugly oh i'm sorry there is a new release ugly dolls from this year uh you can pick that up <sighs> sorry i thought i was gonna sneeze um uh you can pick up ugly dolls from 2019 um yeah i don't know anybody who saw it so um yeah i guess tell me if that's any good or not uh, oh, and one last thing. Warner Archives is putting out Whatever Happened to Baby Jane with Joan Crawford and Betty Davis. Uh, that is a wonderful film. If you have not seen it, check it out. That is a hell of an interesting watch and uh, uh, a fantastic flick that actually inspired the first season of Feud, um, uh, Bet and Joan, uh, which is, I think, pretty wonderful, even though Olivia de Havilland's trying to sue them. So <laughs> uh, anyway, that's Blu-rays. Cool. Uh, what's going on in movie news this week? It's real news. Uh, we got hit with a double dose of death. Um, uh, we'll start with the uh, uh, the most recent one. 
uh, is that uh, Brucey Taylor, uh, who was the voice of uh, Minnie Mouse, um, and she was also the voice of Martin Prince, passed away. Um, uh, she was 75 years old. Um, big old career in voiceover, um, but mainly for Minnie Mouse. But my, I love her as Martin Prince. Um, that that is a that is a character on that show that is the butt of every joke, but man, that delivery is like perfect. Like one of my favorite moments that Rusey Taylor ever did on the show is from the lemon tree episode where they're going to Shelbyville to get the lemon tree back and they're split Bart splitting everybody up into different teams and Martin gets teamed up with Nelson and he goes and your team name will be and Martin just goes team discovery channel, <laughs> um, which follows up with Nelson going, your wussiness better come in handy. <laughs> um, and then also, uh, uh, I talked about Bard of Darkness on the last Shamley Silhouette um, with uh, Aaron, but um, uh, in that episode, uh, Martin makes a gets a pool and uh, to lure people away from uh, the Simpsons pool, and uh, he's like, "At last, my plan is coming to fruition. Soon, I will be queen of summertime, king, king, I mean king." <laughs> um, and then you also hear Rusey Taylor in that episode. Do a lovely rendition of the Summer Wind from uh, Frank Sinatra. At least I think that's the name of the song. I can't remember. I'm not a Frank Sinatra expert. Um, but yeah, and Minnie Mouse. Uh, I think Ryan would know a little bit more about the Minnie Mouse career end of it all. But uh, yeah. yeah, 75, she will be missed. Um, but I guess, uh, do you think they'll retire that character? Or will they try to find someone else to do that voice? Because Troy McClure disappeared after Phil Hartman died. So Oh, for The Simpsons. I thought you were talking about Minnie Mouse. I'm like, no, Minnie Mouse oh, is yeah. going to always go I on. Mean, she's... Uh, has she was she original voice of Minnie? Uh, no, no, no. Yeah, so because <laughs> yeah, that no, that's eighty, that's ninety years old, sir. Uh, no, um, uh, I I think with the Simpsons, um, it's more than likely they're just going to retire the character. Although it wouldn't surprise me if someone else on the staff could do the voice. But I also think that they've been around so long that the, it would it would behoove them not to try to replace it. Like they they retired Miss um, Krabappel when. Um, when her uh, actor passed away, so um, uh, so the Marsha Wallace, Marsha Wallace, yes. Yeah. So, so it's not the first time that they've had to true. retire a voice. Um, and Phil Hartman's was because that situation was fucking messed up. So, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, and it also just reminds me that the cast of The Simpsons is getting older and. <laughs> pretty soon they won't be able to go on forever <laughs> yeah maybe maybe within the next two years is time to take a bow i don't know i'm not saying they should because i'll still watch the simpsons but maybe just for posterity's sake you might want to bow out at some point but i don't know again disney plus has got them so we may get more from them yeah um but I'm, um go ahead i was gonna say if this is the 30th year right so now would be the time, but otherwise, another 10, 40. I suppose most of those people could survive another 10 years, do you think? I don't know. Could they? I mean, there's a whole documentary about how one of those characters is problematic right now. So, Well, Hank Azaria's got plenty to pick from. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. So, um, But anyway, um, and that's actually a good documentary, the, the problem with that poo. Uh, people should check that out. It's pretty interesting. Um, the bigger voice or the bigger death this week though was Rutger Hauer passed away at the age of 75. Also, this is the 75ers club guys. Um, but Rutger Hauer, a blade runner tears of the rain. What, what, what he's done so much more, but I think everyone like 
I saw a barrage of him and Blade Runner photos this week. Um, but he was also in The Hitcher. Uh, he plays the bad guy in The Hitcher. Um, he was um, the the bad CEO who tries to push um, who pushes Morgan Freeman out of Wayne Enterprises in Batman Begins. He's um, a Lee Hawk. He was a uh, hobo with a shotgun, which I watched this week. Ooh, we'll talk a little bit about it. Um, and also, he was in Sin City as uh, Cardinal Rourke. So um, you know, he he had a long interesting career he did a lot of he, he didn't even it, it was it, like he was never like truly like a huge mainstream hit but he like worked all over the fucking place so um it's actually kind of uh uh amazing when you look back at his filmography how much like did little weaving in and out he did and whatnot and yeah. there's a bunch of action films he did in the 80s and 90s that i've never seen before but yeah. like apparently they're cult classics so but he'll be best remembered as roy batty from Blade Runner with his incredible climactic speech. Of all the things that you were going to do with Blade Runner... Oh, you know what's funny? He died in 2019. And Blade Runner takes place in 2019. That's messed up. I know. Did, did, does that mean Harrison Ford's going to die in 2049? <laughs> oh, wait, no. He doesn't die. He lives in that at the end of 2049. It's Ryan Gosling who gets shot at the end. Yeah, spoilers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hey, they had time to go to it's that. It's only two years. They had time to go to that movie in theaters. If they were going to let it fail, they deserve to have it spoiled. No, sorry. I didn't mean to spoil Blade Runner 2049. Someone's at home being like, I'm going to put on Blade Runner 2049, but, well, listen well, to Real Nerds Podcast in the background. Oh, what the hell? <laughs> uh, now I've got to watch two hours and 40 minutes of this just to get to something I already know. I refuse to watch in the theater because I only enjoy watching movies at home. Here we go. Oh, God. <laughs> Stupid Ruiners podcast. Yeah. Uh, one one film you'll want to check out Rutger Hauer in, though, is a uh, 2002 film, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. It's George Clooney's directorial debut, and he plays like a worn-out and weary assassin. Uh, he's really good in it, too. Um, it's not like a huge role, but it's he's there. So, Anyway, uh, Rutger Hauer, uh, 75, he will be missed. Um, we got a bunch of trailers uh, this week. Um, got more trailers? Yeah. Well, not like by I say a bunch, I mean... A decent amount. Uh, we got a Jojo Rabbit trailer, the new film from Taika Waititi, uh, which this looks hilarious. Mm-hmm. This looks pretty fucking hilarious. Uh, it's got a bit of a Mel Brooksian kind of feel to it, which I totally dig. And Taika Waititi playing Hitler in the film. It'll be pretty. It'd be funny to see how he takes a stab at um, at uh, at the whole situation there. So, um and uh, you see a little bit of uh, Sam Rockwell and Scarlett Johansson in the trailer. It's a really short trailer, so um, I don't know. What do you think of it? I'm I'm interested to see uh, Kiwi's perspective on uh, the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Should be interesting. So yeah, we'll see. Yeah, uh, and uh, the more uh, mainstream of it all would be the Zombieland Double Tap trailer. Um, and uh, everybody's older. <laughs> Yeah, and in the ten years that this has been around, uh, there every one of those main actors has had some form of Oscar nomination or win behind them. That's uh, pretty crazy. I mean, I think Emma Stone's the only winner because uh, Eisenberg hasn't won. Abigail Bresman was already a nominee when she starred in the first one, and I guess Harrelson was already a nominee. So, but uh, but you know, like I say, it's a crazy cast, and uh, looks like there's plenty of new stuff new new stuff to go around. It's not just a you know, more of the same, but yeah. So it sounds like they're just trying to grow the characters at this point. Yeah. But, 
again know, world building yeah which i not, like that's just a straight up you know sequel yeah like i say um should be should be interesting um i haven't watched the first zombie land trailer in a while and i was actually on board with ruben fleischer as a director for the first couple of flicks um i think gangster squad kind of lost me uh because that's a film that i should have loved and adored and i didn't so much but i haven't seen it in a while i remember not liking it so um who knows? Well, you didn't like Venom either, did you? Not really. I, I, I'm fairly sure I called it pure garbage, but what do I know? I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm not the end all be all. Anyway, moving on. Um, Spider-Man: Far From Home made a uh, billion dollars at the box office, so it's the first Spider-Man film to do so. Uh, the reason I bring that up is because apparently there was a story going around a couple of weeks ago that there was a clause in the contract that if this one didn't break a billion, that the Marvel deal would have been kaput. Um, oh, way to go, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> way to keep it in Sony's hands, you jerks. No, 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 no. The, if if they didn't break a hundred or, or a billion, then Marvel, they wouldn't have to stick with Marvel. Oh, like Sony would get it back yeah, for themselves? Yeah, Sony, Sony would just get it back by themselves. So. Ah. Yeah, so. Now, now you know. So now they're obligated to stick with Marvel. Yeah, or or at least it sounds like. I mean, I don't think they were going to ever let go of Marvel because th- they've helped them make a lot of money. So, because uh, I because I know Sony gets a big old chunk of that change. So. Yeah, but what's the point of the contract then? If it was, I think it must have been like a just in case thing when they first announced the whole merger. So mm. you know, um, but anyway, moving on. Uh, uh, you know who also made a lot of money? Um, uh, this this small little company called Disney. Uh, they made seven billion dollars from remakes in the last nine years. They're gonna have the top five highest grossing movies of the year. Yeah, I think and, by the end of the year. Yeah, and, and in other news, um, uh, Disney has officially just bought the Real Nerds podcast, and we will make a billion dollars by the end of the year. Yeah, yeah. Stop swearing, Zach. It, fuck that. No. Ah. <laughs> Yeah, there they go. Yeah, don't worry. Universal just picked us up. Bring that money back here. No, no, no. Universal bought us for twenty five thousand dollars. It's fine. They're gonna pair us up with minions, though. Metadoy, <laughs> metadoy, <laughs> banana. Um, uh, hey, um, it's a lovely day today because we've just found out that Fury Road will be getting a sequel, uh, according to director George Miller. Apparently, he's in talks with Warner Brothers to solidify that. God, still like four years out, though. Yeah, but doesn't matter. We're going to get it. So um, he said there's two in the uh, in the works. But he's like seven years old. <laughs> uh, this is what he said, um, and I'm going to use his proper voice. Um, uh, there are two stories. I don't know his actual voice. There are two stories, both involving Mad Max and he's also Australian. So, uh, oh, well, I, all I can do is that's, I can only do New Zealand and that's Peter Jackson. So that's enough. <laughs> there are two stories, both involving Mad Max and also a Furiosa story. <laughs> We're still solving. We've got to play out the Warners thing. It seems pretty clear that that's going to happen. Digital fix. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, and, I felt like he was here. Yeah, no, 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 he was totally here. Oh, you know what? I could have. <laughs> oh, I've been there too often when it comes to announcing movies that are gonna happen and then fall away. It happened three times on Fury Road, and eventually we got the damn thing made. All right, there you go. See, that's uh, Mad Max. He kind of sounds like a really bad version of Mel Gibson. That's what it sounds like. But anyway, yeah, you're getting a Fury Road, uh, a couple Fury Road movies. So good for you, man. Um. All, all your whining paid off. I don't know. 
Um, and uh, uh, let's see here. Uh, Stallone uh, has been talking a lot. Uh, and in uh, a recent update, he wants uh, to let the past die. And he wants a Rocky sequel and maybe even a prequel. And, and my uh, first uh, reaction to that was, uh, what was Creed and Creed 2 then? Was that not um, uh, what, what he is talking about here at all? Th- those are two sequels, two Rocky movies. Yeah. And- Rocky's in them. How would you do a Rocky prequel? I, I don't know. You'd have to cast somebody else. I, I, unless he thinks he's going to tap into Disney's de-aging technology. I, I don't know. Um, Stallone wants to make a Rocky prequel series for TV. Oh, um, okay. So that's, that might be there. Um, uh, uh, apparently, Erwin Link- Winkler doesn't like the prequel idea, um, uh, which is fine because he's right. Um, and as for another sequel... Um, the uh, Stallone pitched the idea Rocky meets a young, angry person who got stuck in this country when he comes to see his sister. And he takes him into his life and unbelievable adventures happen. And then they wind up south of the border. It's very, very timely. Um, wow, he's really focused on the border. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 yeah. That's uh, the plot to Last Blood almost. Yeah. That's sad. Uh, yeah, you know, um... He's he's gonna do what he's gonna do, and we don't have any say in that. I never want to get old, Zach. Yeah, um, apparently you lose your mind when you're old. Yeah, you know what? I mean, like we could take our brains as they are right now and give them to a facility. I mean, we'd be dead, like mm-hmm. body wise, but our brains would live on, and then hopefully we'll pass over the Skynet, the Second Coming of Jesus, and then just skip right to the big future, and then we get android bodies. How do we know all the people taking care of our brains are going to do their job properly? Well, they will. I paid them five bucks each. That doesn't seem like a job you would want to do well for five bucks. Well, I told them that if they did a really good job, they'd get an extra dollar per person. It still doesn't seem like enough. You're right. I think we're fucked. <laughs> Probably takes a lot of energy to power the cryo facility. Yeah. <laughs> Probably about as much as it is to charge an iPhone at this point. Technology. Um, hey, you like Criterion, right? Yes. I love Criterion, too. They're getting their thousandth uh, spine uh, going this year, and it's going to be a Godzilla box set, and it looks f- fucking awesome. Uh, it's got 15 Godzilla films in there. So Henry's um, already got it pre-ordered? Yep. Uh, so And it's the film starting with Gojira, the, um, the um, Ishiro Honda film that started it all, up to 1975. Does this um, also... Because they already released a Godzilla set. Of the first movie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think they have another one out there already anyway. Yeah, so, so are those two in this set? Yes, they are. Um, oh. So, But the other ones they're putting out aren't on there yet. So it's really nine ninety eight then. <laughs> you know, y- you, you're mean, but you're right. <laughs> I'm just exposing the truth, man. Hey, if there's two spots left... I'm just saying Thunderbolt and Thunderbolt 2. Oh, man. Could be Criterion. Criterion Editions. Yeah. Um, th- th- I made them myself. They're better than Criterion Editions. But but they have to have expert historical commentaries, like historians come in and whatnot. So I'll just claim to be a historian and come talk about the films. <laughs> oh, man. Now you got me thinking about, like, 20-year anniversary editions where oh. <laughs> I do have people who weren't involved in the film come on and do commentaries. Instead of Mondo art, it's Dumbo art. <laughs> Just like crayon drawings of it instead of like elaborate designs to show the fandom and respect. I'll get James's baby to draw it. 
and it says in the at the bottom corner Leona Hart, and the R is backwards. Oh no, the H is tiny, but the art is <gasps> ah, larger. Yeah, there you go. Art. See, yeah, yeah. James, get on uh, teaching your kid how to draw for the twentieth anniversary edition. Um, uh, there was this story in the news about movie theaters considering vi- variable and dynamic pricing models after the success of their discount days. Uh, in other news, this has been fucking talked about before, and I don't know how well it's going to work. Um, yeah, I think it's shitty to say, like, you know, here's this movie, you know, we think it's worth less than this other one. Like, granted, yeah, a movie like Endgame has way more people involved, special effects. Mm-hmm. Um, indie films, not so much smaller crew, uh, but still like telling, telling people right out of the gate, you know, that indie film is only worth five bucks. Yeah. Um, you know, people don't understand the industry and like what's behind it. They just see a product. Yeah. So they're not going to, you know, take into account that it's five bucks because it didn't cost as much to make. Yeah. And actually I saw some form of this, uh, recently, come th- on my phone i get regal and amc updates and um uh one i think it was regal um said hey booksmart tickets are now five bucks and i was like at first i thought that was just like oh they're booksmart's really trying to make some money back and then i read this story and i was like nope that's that's what this is yeah. uh, oddly enough though this was discussed as far back as 2013 and it's been talked about ever since uh spielberg like made the comparison like you're gonna have to pay 25 dollars for the next iron man movie you'll probably only have to pay seven dollars to see lincoln and then george lucas said james come see movies in my basement uh and that's how the rest of the conversation went up from there there on out so you know um just saying james james just go hang out in george lucas's basement that's the point of this story i got an idea just make them affordable for people like if if they're selling well at 575 Mm -hmm. make them all 575 because then you'll get more people in and you probably get more sales for concessions yeah yeah you make your money off concessions but um, um, yeah, if you're just going to like, oh, well, we're going to price them because they need to be 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to send people home or just send, or, or just keep with the flat rate and keep your, uh, early morning matinees around. Yeah. Time, uh, the time I'm, pricing I'm, is ve- fine. I'm very disappointed that Alamo got rid of their early morning pricing. Um, I know. I stopped going as much. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not, I, I mean, I love the Alamo and I keep going. Like we'll talk about it later on in the review, but um, but I saw the up there and I was just like, oh, that's kind of disappointing. I mean, it doesn't make me not want to go to the Alamo. And also go, but it's, it's yeah. less. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's just. Now I, I'm just waiting for their season pass to come out. Yeah, exactly. Which I think is possibly why they're even dipping into that, uh, like taking stuff away like that anyway, because that season pass is going to be a more yeah, well, I wish lucrative they offer. Fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, hey, you know what? Ryan can come on next week and brag more about how he has it and we don't. Yeah, Ryan's up in Idaho Springs, not using it. We're down here, you know, shelling out fifteen bucks a week. Yeah, so I'm just saying, Ryan, give us your give us your shit. <laughs> um, and then the last piece of news: uh, it chapter two will uh, be two hours and forty five minutes. Uh, I've never heard of a theatrical mainstream horror movie running that long before. Uh, in a th- like I say, in a theater, Salem's Lot was on television. Um, so, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, hey, uh, any uh, any time I can watch more uh, Pennywise the Clown, uh, I'm totally down for that. Um, uh, so yeah, and uh, there's a four hour director's cut that will probably show up on Blu-ray. So there you go, lots of it of just part two. I think basically 
they're saying we made the miniseries length, but uh, we can't do that in a theater because no one's going to give us that many showtimes. So, uh, but anyway, that's news. All right, I guess that just means uh, we need to find out what we've been watching. So, uh, yeah, this is the stuff we've been watching. Brad, what you, uh, Zach, what have you been watching? <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to go first. That's why I was still pulling myself up. No, um, I'm a dick move. <laughs> uh, I watched a couple things. Um, I saw The Farewell, uh, the new film from Lulu Wang with Aquafina. Um, uh, which was kind of a last minute thing. I ended up going to see it with Andrew Bueno, who's been on the show before. I know back. I was there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause you <laughs> dropped me off. Um, uh, I loved it. Uh, is this is one of the most emotional, heartbreaking and funny films I've seen this year. Um, uh, story involves Aquafina. She plays Billy. Um, she has a Chinese, she's just Chinese, um, gal growing up in New York and her family. Um, uh, uh, find out that her there that the grandmother, the head matriarch of the family, is diagnosed with cancer, but they're deciding not to tell the grandmother. So they are going out for a wedding, um, which is basically an excuse to go say goodbye to her. So. so even the doctor lies to her. Yes. Wow, that's messed up. Yeah, I'm not. I don't want to spoil much for it, even though there's not like it's it's very much a moment by moment thing of this family living with this this it's a tradition and a kind of uh lie it's a, yeah it's based on an actual lie yeah that's what that's what the subtitle is in the film but um it i don't know i want to watch it again because there's there's something about the way they handle that element of it that is pretty fascinating from the emotional standpoint obviously but also in just like how do you view it from a culture like Everyone who's living in the United States that's going out there to visit, like, points out how this is wrong. But then they kind of throw in the tradition um, from the Chinese perspective. So it's 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 fascinating to see how it operates, um, and more importantly, how they emotionally maneuver through it. Um, but it's it's like I said, it, this is one of the most. Uh, amazing films I've seen this year. Uh, Aquafina is fantastic in it. Like we've seen her in, you, I mean, you at least saw her in Ocean's Eight, mm-hmm. um, and I've seen her in Crazy Rich Asians. So um, she she was already impressing me in those, and then suddenly she just knocks it out of the park with this. Like she's emotionally raw. She's really funny in it, but like she's really put in a very vulnerable place and given a lot of room to like to to grow in this story. Um, Z Ma is in the movie, plays her father, uh, and I hadn't seen him in a movie since The Lady Killers, and he's amazing in the movie. Um, but hands down, one of the best performances in this film, and therefore of the year, is uh, is uh, I'm gonna hope, hope I pronounce this right, Zhao Shuchen, who plays the grandmother in the movie. She is wonderful, just absolutely wonderful. Like there's just. There's a life in her. You could have just said the lady that plays the grandmother. I, I don't care. I, you know what? I'm going to try my best to say Definitely that. got it wrong. Okay. How do you know I got it wrong? Oh, we'll get letters. Okay. <laughs> dear dear Real Nerds Podcast, how dare you? Um, so, yeah. Um, like I said, go see The Farewell. Uh, it's pretty awesome. Um, uh, and I, like I said, I want to go see it again. Um, I rewatched Foreign Correspondent um, for uh, the Hitchcock and the Shamley Silhouette stuff. I'm just still going through the films. Uh, Foreign Correspondent is a 
I don't know if we'll have an episode where we'd have to discuss it, but it's basically a film about uh, an American reporter sent overseas to cover an impending war in Europe. Because <laughs> guess what was going to happen, guys? Um, and um, and just basically gets p- caught up in a political intrigue plot that kind of puts him on a roller coaster of suspense. Um, Brad, I think you actually might like this movie a lot from a visual standpoint because it has some of the best visual effects a 40s movie has ever had. Um, there's a there's there's scenes that are just so elaborate with the decoration and the set design and kind of the way they do some certain visual effects in order to like create scale and scope for what is otherwise just a big studio lot. Um, and there's also a uh, a plane gets gunned down in the movie and then a big tidal wave of water hits the plane as soon as they crash. And it's for the period, it's some of the most amazing visual effects I've ever seen out of a 40s film. And and for Hitchcock especially, like, it's it's elaborate. Like, the camera's, like, right in the middle of the action. The water's just splashing into it. It's it's amazing. Um, but I And I hadn't watched it in a while, so I've forgotten that this was um, as big an effects bonanza as it is. I mainly remember it for a scene where um, the main diplomat that there um, that is basically like the, the subject of the investigation gets shot. And then uh, Joel McRae's character uh, runs through a sea of umbrellas to get to try to track down the guy who shot him. So um, also in the windmill sequences, fantastic, but um, a lot of pure cinema in there, but yeah. Uh, and then I rewatched the lady vanishes, um, which is uh, the second to last film uh, Hitchcock made in Britain before he went off to America and uh, met up with um, noted amphetamine addict David O. Selznick uh, and made Rebecca. Um, but uh, Lady Vanishes is uh, uh, falls along similar lines in terms of bringing attention to an impending war in Europe without directly saying it. Um, but it involves in the middle of a mystery where a woman meets an older woman on a train. She passes out and then wakes up and finds that that woman has disappeared and everyone around her is denying that they ever saw her. And so it's up to her and a musician that she's met to try to figure out where the woman went and why everybody's refusing to have acknowledged seeing her. Um, it's one of those films where it's um, uh, every time I watch it, I'm amazed how much they're able to do within the space of a train set. So basically like just, just railway cars and how to make that visually interesting because they rarely leave the train in the movie. Um, uh, and it has two characters in the film who the only reason they're not acknowledging that they saw the lady is because if they do, it'll throw off the train schedule and they'll miss a cricket match in London. So I, uh, and I pitched this to you earlier in the week, but I want a movie where two people are uh, uh, basically in, in intentionally disrupting an investigation just so they can like, you know, go to a movie screening or something like that. Cause otherwise it'll throw off their timetable and whatnot. I don't know how you do it, but I think it'd be a pretty funny idea. Um, uh, I saw into the woods, um, when I did fitness cinema this morning, um, uh, I had never seen it before. Um, it's okay. It's not great. That great. Really? Um, uh, it's, you know, based on the musical by Stephen Sondheim. Um, and it's a Sondheim that I'm very unfamiliar with. Um, so, but if you don't know, it's basically about fairy tale characters kind of running into the reality of morality and, uh, the, the, 
the consequences of the results of most of their stories um, has Meryl Streep in it playing an evil witch um, who has a certain point of view on things. Uh, it has Emily Blunt and James Corden play a, a husband and wife who are trying to have a baby and they uh, uh, make a deal with the witch to steal a bunch of things from other famous fairy tale characters. Uh, Johnny Depp plays a wolf in it and it throws the whole movie off for about a good five, six minutes. Um, and, uh, I, I, I texted it to Ryan today, but like the movie has a, uh, a problem balancing what it wants to be. Cause it's a dark, if it's Sondheim, it's gotta be some form of darkness in it, but it's a Disney movie. And I don't know if they know how to balance it correctly. Um, cause there's moments where it's getting into some, deeper stuff and then it just immediately pushes into slapstick unnecessarily um but there are good things about it like it's visually impressive it looks stunning but and i feel like there's some kind of leaps in the story and again i've never seen into the woods the the musical so i don't know if that's like verbatim of the story but i'd have to imagine it's not um so yeah um Good news is I burned 1,100 calories seeing it. So, you know, not bad for a... And it's a two-hour film, so it's not like it's an incredibly long watch. Um, and then um, I watched... I got the Scream Factory Universal Horror Collection Volume 1, uh, where they put out... They're putting out four f- titles per collection of the old Universal Horror catalog that aren't the monsters. So basically they put out... Uh, for this first volume, they put out the four Karloff and Lugosi team-up movies. So I watched a bunch of the features on it, and then I rewatched The Black Cat uh, from 1934, directed by Edgar G. Ulmer, uh, which is the story of Lugosi plays a man who um, is a veteran of a war uh, that was that he lost um, and is going to confront a man he served with who uh, had claimed he was uh, that Lugosi was dead to Lugosi's wife so that he could steal Lugosi's wife um, and it ends up being a sordid tale of revenge, mystery, and strange for the 1930s, incest, um, uh, involving Karloff playing the head of a satanic cult. Uh, this is one of the most bold and daring universal horror movies you will ever see from the era. Um, I- I've watched it several times before, and Scream Factory cleaned this shit up so good. Um, or, um, or like at least kept the transfer that was already looking good. Cause I have never seen it look this good before. So, um, I don't think they did the transfer, but, uh, they'd gotten a transfer that was already done. That was already high resolution, but I'd never seen that one before. So either way, it looks fantastic. I'll dig into the other ones later. Uh, and then the last thing I saw was, uh, I dug into the universal monster box sets again. Uh, and I, uh, watched the mummy's tomb. Um, the movie is an hour long. And the first 10 minutes of it are flashbacks to the previous uh, Mummy movie, which was The Mummy's Hand. Uh, so this is basically a 50-minute movie. Uh, it basically follows the plot from The Mummy's Hand, where Carisi, the mummy, um, seeks revenge on the people from The Mummy's Hand uh, with the help of Turhan Bey. Um, and uh, Lon Chaney this time plays The Mummy. And uh, I feel bad for Lon Chaney because that makeup must have fucking sucked. Um He's got his, like, lips sealed and everything and whatnot. And he's not really doing much. Like, Turham Bay is really the villain. Lon Chaney Jr. is just really the monster, the mummy running around. And these are the mummy movies where the mummy's just wrapped in bandages, kind of stalking people as opposed to an imposing evil force. 
So, um, but it, I mean, it's not the worst mummy movie I've seen. Um, there's some stuff that's fun about it, the way it's shot, but it's just not, it's a universal monster movie. Like the mummy movies are really tough watches because they're kind of, they're kind of off kilter from the normal vibe. So, um, but they're like adventure movies. So the Brendan Fraser movies that Steven Summers ended up doing are actually in keeping with the way the mummy movies operated back then. So, um, uh, I don't know if this one is as uh, is better than uh, Mummy Three: Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, but uh, I'll have to rewatch that and let you know. Uh, and that's all I watched this Probably week. Probably not. Brad, what did you watch this week? Um, so not because Rucker Howard died. Uh, I watched uh, Hobo the Shotgun. Just mere coincidence. Does it still hold up? I I liked it, but I didn't like love it when I saw it. Um. It was actually my number one movie of 2011. Oh, um, and I and I know I know why at the time. Um, I I still think it's it's a fun movie, but I have since watched Drive and enjoyed Drive way more mm. um, from that year. So you know, next next year, next next year, when we get back to re- redoing our 2011 as film solutions, there might be a shakeup. Did you not see Drive in the theater? I did. Oh, you did, but it just it was, didn't. It was the first movie movie I ever saw in Los Angeles. Oh, but but yeah, but it wasn't. But it was it on your list or? Yeah, I think it was third. Okay, right on, cool. And I can't remember what was second. All right, cool. In that year, right on. Maybe, but anyway, maybe it was second. Hobo with a shotgun, though. Hobo with a shotgun. Um, yeah, I'm sure the vibe of the time was like it just tickled all my sensibilities. Now, um, I don't know. It's, like I said, you know, it's it's hard to look at drive in that movie and be like, yeah, I do enjoy drive a lot more these days. Uh, but hope with the shop guns fun. Um, you know, nailed that, uh, grindhouse aesthetic. Um, you know, there's just a lot of cool gore effects and, uh, like the, the dialogue is way more offensive than I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's a grindhouse movie uh, yeah. or an exploitation film. So, uh, but you know that, that that's the tone they're going for. This isn't a serious movie. Yeah. Um. It's yeah, just a a, a guy who really wants to lo- wants to uh, own a lawnmower. A uh, homeless guy who really wants to own a lawnmower, and it, that doesn't go his way, and he gets a shotgun instead, and you know takes down Drake and his kids, and you know how all their oppression on the town, and uh, yeah, it's just it's fun and schlocky, and mm. yeah. Um. I also got around to trying to rewatch. I tried. I started The Dirt a while back, and then just kind of didn't. It's the Motley Crue movie on Netflix. Uh, uh, Ryan watched it, and uh, yeah, I, I think his review was that you know the movie. This movie's like too tame for what they're describing. Hmm. Um. So, I mean, there, there's some shocking stuff in it, and but it, it's still a, the pretty much the standard story like the for every movie of a band where you know or a musician of any type musician you know everything's going great you know they're childhood friends they start a band they they get successful they get into drugs they break apart by the end they realize they're better together than they are apart so is it more shocking than bohemian rhapsody because that's the scale i go off of now i mean visually there's like a lot more nudity and um Mm -hmm. i guess gross things happening uh, actually, there's a there's a part where Vince Neil mm-hmm. crashes a Lamborghini, I think, mm-hmm. uh, with his buddy Raz or something. He looks like Slash. I thought he was Slash most of the time. 
Yeah, but you're like, that's Guns N' Roses. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I didn't know Slash was British. But he has like the hat and the hair and everything. And so, but yeah, they kept calling him Razzle. I was like, oh, they, that was his name before Slash. Mm. Uh, but anyway, they get into a car wreck and uh, Raz dies. Um, and it was pretty cool that when, you know, you see the impact and then Vince Neil wakes up and he's disoriented and then Raz's like head is in his lap. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, he's basically saying like, I'm getting cold, Vince. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in a more poignant way. And then it cuts back to him in reality is like all busted up and it's like just crazy bloody. But cause Vince has been doing drugs, like, you know, he initially comes out of his, um, you know, concussion, yeah. seeing him perfectly fine. Uh, so that was pretty shocking. Yeah. Like I said, like, I, I mean, no disrespect to anybody who likes Bohemian Rhapsody. Like there are enjoyable moments in the film, but that, that film lacks a lot of grit than it should have. <laughs> Yeah. Um, or Edge, I guess you'd call it. So, um, so yeah, and it's, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody, they're trying to get the PG-13. They're, yeah, they're, they're in and Motley Crue's never even going to approach a PG-13. Yeah, like, I don't think any fan way. would want them to do a PG-13. No, 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 no. Uh, um, but they're on Netflix, and they have a lot more freedom to do an R and NC-17. I never asked my dad if he saw it yet, but my dad used to, one of the members of the band um, he went to high school with. So um, he wasn't like, he didn't know him, but like. They'd go to like different smaller shows and whatnot, and he'd be there. So I'm just like, oh, yeah. It's interesting to see like where they came from, and like Tommy Lee was a part of like a good wholesome American family, mm-hmm. stuff like that. So that was, that was interesting. And then he met Pamela Anderson. Uh, he actually met Heather Locklear. That's right. And then Pamela Anderson, I guess. He's got a thing for blondes. Okay. I knew that this man was a fool for blondes. See Kill Bill. Um. I also uh, finally checked out Small Soldiers, which was the other toy movie from 1995. Uh, Joe Dante's Small Soldiers. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Joe Dante, great. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie, bit odd to me. Like, I don't know. Had I, you never seen it before? I hadn't seen it before. Mm. I kind of tuned out in the middle. Like, it just wasn't. Uh, I believe my dad took me to the theater for that one. I liked it. I haven't watched it recently, but I remember having fun with it. Um, I mean, the effects are pretty cool. They still hold up pretty mm-hmm. well. Um, but I don't know. There's just something about having like all these famous comedians as characters in the, in the movie. Like yeah. The, David Cross, Jay Moore, mm-hmm. um, Phil Hartman. Yeah. Um, it just doesn't seem timeless. You know, it just seems like, and then the story just wasn't, I, I'm sorry. I, I know John T- Joe Dante follows the podcast now, but um i don't think he's listening <laughs> <laughs> oh he listens every week now yeah i hope so uh, yeah, hey joe dante gremlins 2 best movie ever yeah no you're a great director man i'm yeah, just <laughs> no I, dude like i mean dude, i just give honest critiques yeah no that's fine this dude. is just my opinion go ahead man like, i, 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 I already backed this up by saying i like it because i do like it um but i was just kind of bored huh. um and i thought some of the i don't know the warmongering toys were just uh you know i the 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 animal kingdom toy i forget what they're called or whatever but you know they uh i guess they just didn't seem like they fought back hard enough compared Mm. to well they're supposed to be like peace loving yeah uh, peace loving yeah warriors yeah whereas tommy lee jones's band of soldiers or yeah they're such dicks man I, i love the design of all the characters um because like even if I, I haven't seen them, like I say, I haven't seen the movie in a while, but I remember vividly like the looks of the soldiers and the looks of the the monster uh, crew and whatnot, and it just 
Yeah. Well, the, yeah, the villains get to do everything, and then the peace-loving animal creatures, they can't do anything. So you're just like, you know, I'm watching most of the movie with, of the, with the villains, and then the heroes, you know, kind of get to sit around and not participate. So it's just like, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, right on. Well, I'll have to rewatch it now and uh, tell you if you're wrong, if you're wrong or not. You know? Yeah. I don't know. Um, I mean, it's then, not about who's right or wrong, but it is. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like that little look that you gave. <laughs> I'm just trying to get through my review, man. Stop interrupting me. Uh, the last thing I watched was the the spy who dumped me. Oh, how was it? Uh, yeah, I, I meant to see it in theaters, like at a dollar theater. Um, didn't get around to it because I was like, this seems mildly amusing, but I'm pretty sure it's what I think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it is mildly amusing, and it, but it's you know, it's it's a vehicle to put those two together, Mio Kunis and Kate McKinnon. I mean, not a vehicle, but just like they're together, and that's the best part of it. Okay, like they're just a they're a good comedy duo, um, and just the spy story is just this thing that they have to go through. Um, I really enjoyed like a lot of their humor is pretty filthy. Mm-hmm. So that cracked me up. Does it um, R rated? I think so. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Like Kate McKinnon says some pretty like nasty things, uh, which are fun. They're funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the whole, the, the story, Mia Kunis, uh, her boyfriend, um, dumps her. Then she finds out that he's a spy because, you know, he tries to, you know, get his stuff back at her apartment. His stuff is this, I guess, flash drive, hidden flash drive that he needs to mm. complete his mission. Um, so she gets roped into it and they have to go across Europe to deliver the flash drive because he gets killed or does he? Um, so they become the spies instead of him and they just encounter a lot of weirdness and danger along the way. Mm-hmm. And they don't know if the people from the CIA or who they say they are. Um, there's just tons of like rogue factions trying to obtain this drive. So it's a lot of, Who's really who? Who can you trust? Mm. So okay, but along the way, it's you know them having like a great friendship. Mm-hmm. So that's good. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I watched this week. Right on. Cool. That brings us to our review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Zach, should some people go see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Uh, yes, I think you should. Um, I've seen it twice now. Um, Brag. <laughs> you know. Okay, um, uh, and uh, so I, I'm a, I'm a Quentin Tarantino fan. Um, what I've talked about it before. My number one film of all time is Jackie Brown because I it's got all the things I want out of a movie. Um, I I think that this is uh, I've heard a lot of different people use the word mature or uh, kind of like melancholic and whatnot, and it is those things. But I think this is the most contemplative. Um, and reflective Quentin Tarantino's ever been in a movie. Um, and it's not hard to see why when you watch the film. Um, we'll talk about it in spoilers, but um, I, I I don't know how much of the film... Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a part of me that feels like this film is not what other people wanted when I'm reading reviews. Um, I'm looking at it as almost kind of like a self commentary by Quentin Tarantino about some of the choices he's made throughout his career, um, in terms of content and whatnot. And and I think it actually ties in a little bit directly to this most spoilery part of the movie. Um, so yeah, I would definitely go see it. I'm still processing my thoughts even, even as we're going to be review this. So, uh, I think by the end of the year, you'll know whether or not I, uh, like 
like if I can consider it in the top tier still. I will say though, like this is this is easily the most hangouty movie Tarantino's done in years. Like it is, it's it very it does very much feel like one of his films he did in the nineties. So, uh, yeah. I would say I, I would absolutely go see it and see it in 35 at the Alamo Littleton if you can, because uh, that print makes it look amazing. Like that's that's the way you should watch it. Like it just it just works that way. We'll talk about that later. Brad, well, should people go see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Well, I did see it at the Alamo in 35 millimeters. So yeah. I'm here to tell you that uh, other than cigarette burns in the corner, I did not notice a difference. <laughs> mm. But I guess I don't get to watch 35 millimeter versus digital as much anymore. Yeah. So, and you haven't seen the digital print of it yet. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but as far as recommending the movie, I can't say that I can. I'd say if you really love Tarantino, mm-hmm. um, if you love like what what goes on beneath the surface of his movies, sure, go see it. You'll probably enjoy it. But as a casual moviegoer, I would have to admit that I was pretty bored through most of the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean everyone including tarantino are doing a quality work um like the performances are great but i just felt like the movie had nothing to offer um like it's it's just so passive um i just couldn't i spent the whole movie just wondering where is this going mm-hmm. um and that's a bit unfair because you know with all the reporting of like what this movie is ahead of time, you know, I'm kind of waiting for it to be mm-hmm. what, it, you know, I suspect it to be, but you know, I don't feel like I really want to go back and watch it mm-hmm. because I have to sit through so much meandering. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a cool, it's cool to make a movie about the day in the life of different people mm-hmm. that hopefully comes together at the end. Uh, but it came to get the, at the end in a wild way that was entertaining. Finally, but ultimately I only liked it because it was, it had energy to it. Um, I, I felt like it was actually a little bit mean <laughs> to certain characters. Um, so I don't know. Um, yeah, like I said, if you're a casual movie goer, you might be really bored like I was. And if you love Tanchino, then you'll enjoy what he has to say, hmm. which I don't think is as strong as it used to be. Well, well right on. Um, why don't we go ahead and play that trailer then? Cool. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Marvin. Put it there. That's your son? No, it's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> All the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? No, I'm a stuntman. Look at me. So you still direct, huh? Still here. You can do anything you want to him. I hired you to be an actor, Rick. Not a TV cowboy. You're better than that. Line. Cut! Embarrass yourself like that in front of all those goddamn people. All right, what's the matter, partner? It's official, old buddy. Well, it has been. 
I got living next door to me. I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. You're in this? That's me. I play Miss Carlson, the klutz. Charlie's gonna dig you. And that gospel group. I can all change like that. Hey! You're Rick fucking Dalton. Don't you forget it. Um I I I I understand what you're saying, and again, like I'm not I'm not blind to people's expectations versus you can't see it, but the final. Zach result. is crying because I didn't like it. No, no, not at all. <laughs> he's very he's Zach, put down the knife. <laughs> no, um, like I mean, at the end of the day, like it's, it, you know, it's funny. I haven't watched uh, to bring it to another '90s filmmaker. I haven't watched uh, Clerks or Clerks Two in a while, uh, but those are movies about people hanging out. Um, there's a lot of '90s movies about people hanging out. Yeah, that's what this movie is. It's it's two people hanging out, and I. Imagine that that's going to be a problem for some people. Yeah. Well, Clerks is like every, you know, the pacing, every, you know, minute or so, there's something funny or shocking that mm-hmm. happens. In this movie, I'm really just like when Brad Pitt fights Bruce Lee, mm-hmm. like that's interesting. Mm-hmm. But then I have to wait what feels like another hour to get to the home invasion scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the best part of the movie, but. Um, it's just it, the tone from the rest of it. It's so out of left field that I, like I enjoy it because it's hyper violent mm. and that it like got my attention. Like I almost fell asleep uh, by the time um, oh, Leonardo DiCaprio was uh, rehearsing with the little girl. Um, but like I said, you know, watching all those actors act, it's it's like they're all doing great work, especially DiCaprio, but also Margot Robbie. I feel like she just spends the whole movie going like, I'm Sharon Tate. Hi. Hmm. Um, she gets to watch her own movie. Like that's a whole scene. Mm-hmm. I'm like, um, yeah, she, do we need to see her in the theater watching her own movie. Um, it feels like we're just watching actual Sharon Tate, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Nice of him to like show people who she was and that she existed and living. And, and living. I think that that's the important part of it. Now, I do want more moments with her having some Tarantino dialogue or having like, there is an element where she is kind of a set piece to a degree. um, If you're looking from that lens. But when I was watching the film, I was enamored by the fact that we got to see her just living life, which is something that obviously you can't see. And um, now the question to my mind is that what kind of a statement does that make? And le- that's why I'm saying I still haven't figured out my like full thoughts on the film. I, yeah. I can tell you what I like about it. And um, I kind of disagree with you uh, in terms of exciting things happening because within that day to day, it is exciting to me to watch Dalton not confront his uh, his 
<laughs> alcoholism, but rather just confront confront the insecurity he's having as an actor who feels like he's not accomplishing anything. And to do that scene between him and Luke Perry and the little girl, uh, Julia Butters, who uh, who's fantastic, by the way. Um, but that scene and then, you know, him like the the, the result of that is that he gets called a gr- one of the greatest actors ever. Um, and then you have Brad Pitt's whole um, Cliff, Cliff's adventure taking um, Pussycat to the Spawn movie ranch where I have not felt I, – I love Quentin. I don't necessarily love Quentin's most violent moments. They're fun. I like when he draws out tension and well, yeah, puts you in suspense. Great tense moments for Spawn sure. Spawn movie ranch is one of the – most intense uh, and suspenseful moments I've ever seen out of a Tarantino movie. Like all the Manson curls kind of like every time they enter a frame, they look like an army and it's, it's really creepy and bizarre. Um, I mean, and the payoff of Bruce Dern as George Spawn, um, it's a little, um, you know, day to day banter and whatnot, but like the tension is good enough that when you get to that and, spawns like saying it's okay for these gals to be here and therefore it kind of throws you off i think the difference is that since there's history behind it we know that there's some underlying fear going on even though the moment's telling us we're all right we know that it's not because we know as viewers where this is going to go so again there's there's a disconnect to a degree there but it's Tarantino's um, version of history, so we never know what the fuck's going to happen. Um, uh, and I, and I liked the I, I think the scene with Margot Robbie watching her own movie is is adorable and cute and wonderful. Uh, I will say though, uh, <laughs> I I think Quentin Tarantino heard all of us making jokes about the foot thing uh, and just decided to throw it back on our faces because there's more feet in here than ever. Uh, uh, even not even shots that are obvious like they there's people walking around barefoot on spawn spawn ranch so uh like i mean there's nothing wrong with that the those are shots those are signature shots of his but i i think y'all get what you pay for when you make those comments um but um anyway though i i do feel at the end of the day that um one of the best scenes in this movie hands down is when he's talking to the little girl and uh dalton's describing the novel he's reading but he's really just breaking down on his own life um there's a hint of it for me that felt like oh oh quentin tarantino's being open right now and that's interesting i want to see how much more of that he does and i think he does a little bit more of it than you'd expect um i think this film is very very much aware of i wouldn't say quentin tarantino's irrelevant but I would say that filmmaking right now is changing, not too dissimilarly to the way it was changing in 1969 going into the 70s. Um, I mean, and the question that I have at the end of the film is, even though history is revised, does it change the progress of Hollywood? Because we're left on a note of positivity, but I, I'm fully aware that even though Rick Dalton gets to hang out with Sharon Tate at the end of the movie, that the Hollywood he knows is going away regardless. Um, so I guess there's, there's a bit of ambiguity in there, which is something that I'm not used to from Tarantino. Like there is an ambiguity to that last shot. And I think it's not being discussed enough because we want to talk about how the Manson murders are affected in the whole scenario. And we're not talking about the theme of the film, which is the death of Hollywood. 
that is the the sole theme of this film is the death of golden Hollywood. Um, uh, which by the way, we can get to the Manson part of it, which is, um, uh, Patricia Krenwinkel, Tex Watson, and, uh, the last gal, uh, instead of going to the Tate, remember two out of the three names. Yeah, I can remember two out of them. (laughs) Well, I, I, I read John Waters books and listen to, uh, you must remember this. I know these names now. Um, but, uh, uh, they decide instead of going to the Tate house or the Polanski and Tate house, they decide to go to, uh, Rick Dalton's house. Um, uh, and they go there. They walk in, uh, Cliff, Brad Pitt's character has, uh, been tripping out after smoking an acid dipped cigarette, which he got for 50 cents. Uh, and, uh, the, the the Manson uh the Manson groupies uh proceed to get butchered one by one, whether it's by Cliff Booth's dog, uh Cliff throwing a can of dog food at him, or smashing one person's head in into a phone. Um it's one of the most violent uh Tarantino scenes I've ever seen, and we've seen a lot out of him. Um uh and uh I will say though, there is a call I love the flamethrower callback. I think that is I have never heard a bigger cheer in an audience than that moment. Um, and they were already laughing throughout the whole energy of the moment and whatnot. But, um, but then, yeah, that, that that's, but that's basically it. So they go to the Dalton house instead, but they all get killed. So at least at this moment, Sharon Tate's still alive. Um, and JC bring, uh, well, Cliff gets brought it off to the hospital and whatnot. And, uh, Rick says you're a good friend and he goes, I try and goes off. And then JC bring played by Emil Hirsch, um, comes up to Rick and asks him what's going on. And Rick is invited up to the, to the Polanski Tate residence to, um, have a drink with Sharon Tate. And, um, and that's where the film ends essentially. Um, so again, my question is, is that the base surface level of this film is that the Manson murders were, were thwarted the deeper meaning that kind of ends on a weird ambiguity for me is that it doesn't solve the question of does Rick's Hollywood go away? Um, I think what it does show is that Rick has achieved a stardom. That's the beginning of him achieving stardom because he says early on in the film, I'm one pool party away from being directed by Plansky or hanging out with Sharon Tate. And he did have a bit of a party in that pool when he put that flamethrower on that gal. So, uh, if, if if you call that a party. So, um, again, I think there's a little more to examine in there. And I think just at the end of the day that this is, I think this is ultimately Tarantino saying like, look, I know that not everything I do is as golden as it once was considered to be. Um, and I'm fully aware of that, but if I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out on my own terms. Um, which hence is why he does a film that kind of, uh, kind of runs around Hollywood and does a hangout mode where it reflects on a lot of different aspects of his career. And then at the very end, he does the history revision. But I think this history revision is intentionally more complicated than, say, Inglorious Bastards or even whatever they do in Django Unchained. That's like history revision. So, you know, like, again, there's a lot of different angles to look at this, I think. And also with the length of the film, there's enough to dig into and i'd love to see some think pieces on it uh, i understand that some people will have problems with this film but you know i, I think that there's enough here to want to you know te- tear apart and kind of look at or, and look at constructively so um anything else you liked about the movie nope <laughs> 
I'm uh, not going to give you more stuff to talk about. No, no. I'll tell you what, though. I saw it with my dad, and um, he grew up in, the, uh, in that area um, in the 60s. And when I, got, when I walked out the door with him, like, man, it was just like, yeah, I know what KHJ is. And I, I remember to see that restaurant, that restaurant right there. Like, it was, it was, a, it was a big old throwback for him. So. Top of the review, I, I said, like, everyone is doing the craft really well. Mm-hmm. Um, I just didn't really think the story was that interesting. Yeah, that production design is amazing. Yeah. Like some of the it, – it, it does uh, recreating the that kind of 60, 70 period – Almost as good as, uh, or like just as good, I'd say, as um, David Fincher does it in like Zodiac and whatnot, where it's it's very detailed. And the difference being is that he's clearly not using as much visual effects as he possibly can and whatnot. But so still, it's it's not cheap to nope. Close that's why the that, streets and that movie's ninety million dollars price tag. Yeah. So yeah. Well, cool. Yeah, that's all I really have to say about the film. Like I said, I wanna I wanna watch it again and kind of see if I can find anything more to talk about about it, but. It's a really good film, and obviously it was, it was a film made exclusively for me and nobody else. So <laughs> yeah, take your smart thoughts to a smart podcast. Yeah, exactly. We're the real nerds here. Yeah, but anyway, we go see movies like next week. We're seeing Hobbs and Shaw. Oh, bum bum, which bum, I'm sure bum, we'll bum. have plenty of think pieces to write about bum, that. Bum 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 bum. So uh, I, actually, you guys will be watching Hobbs and Shaw. I'm gonna have to skip it. Bum 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 bum. But I'll hopefully I'll be in the episode to listen to you guys talk about it. Bum. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> just like that trailer music. Um, yeah, Hobbs and Shaw next week. Um, and yeah, and good luck on the 48 hour. Thank you. Yeah, I'm sure you will kick ass as always. And then uh, finally, you will take home the top prize. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you will. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I'm I mean, just going to try and get hit that deadline. That's my goal. I mean, I, I did go to a gypsy and ask that a curse be put on the other participants. That's harsh. I know, but desperate times call for desperate measures. And we live in harsh times, my friend. You don't think I never thought of that? Yeah, but I don't think you'd ever actually go to the gypsy. Would yeah. you? Yeah, mm-hmm. I didn't. I it's wouldn't. the same one from Drag Me to Hell. So I, don't I know think where I'd find one. Ah, oh, man, I saw Evil Dead again after I talk about it. All right. Oh, right. On. No worries, man. But like I said, though, since I made that deal with, the, with her for the curse, uh, I might be dragged down to hell by the end of next week. So maybe I won't be on the show anymore, guys. Cool. Well, until next week. (laughs) Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Real Nerds Podcast. Real Nerds Podcast is a production of Nebulous Visions Multimedia. Thank you to Sparks Mandrill and Plan 9 Studios for our kick-ass theme song. Also, if you're in the Denver area and you're looking for a cool place to see movies, we see them at the Alamo Draft House in Littleton and now also in Sloan's Lake. Thank you to Colorado Coins, Cards, and Comics for supplying us with all our comic needs, especially you, Andrew. You know who you are. And a big shout-out to James's mom. I'm giving you an electronic hug that you can feel through the airwaves. Thanks for listening, and have a nice day.